Hello, <laughs> this is Ivy, and and we are Designer Dow. I'm talking to Paul. Hello, hello. This is me. <laughs> a little bit of background. I am a UX designer and researcher, uh, currently working at Coordinate, which qualifies me to talk about all these things. And Paul. <laughs> Yes, it sure does. Um, I am a designer for uh, too many years now, and I've been working with DAOs for a while, and I've been uh, creating a DAO for designers calling, called Designing Designers and a DAO for researchers called R&DAO. Cool. All right. So the one thing on my spirit today is um, the concept of uh, people talk about research a lot why it's important, why it's not important. And there's been a couple of Twitter debates I've gotten into. Uh, one hot take I found was a designer said that if you have enough feedback loops, then you don't need a designer. Um, which at, one, at some point, kind of yes, but kind of no. Like, as you know, like it's very easy to misinterpret feedback. You mm -hmm. know, confirmation bias. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, especially especially if you have uh, your own agenda and uh, you're the business owner and you want it to be successful and you just listen to what you want to listen when people say, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 we've been, uh, at, at Aaron Dow actually, we've been uh, thinking a lot about how to um, uh, sell research, let's say, mm -hmm. um, and what does... And the underlying question that we got to was, what is the value of research, really? And mm -hmm. how do we measure the value of research? And it's a really interesting, difficult, almost impossible, maybe, task. Mm -hmm. uh, because, um, first of all, um, projects that do good research and um, benefit from it only know that they are benefit from it um, months, maybe years later after mm -hmm. they've done the research. So the, the time discrepancy between doing the research um, and uh, actually shipping something that takes advantage of those insights that were uh, discovered during research phase um, almost um, um, masks the value of research, so to say. And also, like, how do you measure... Because a lot of times, research prevents you from building shit that you don't need to build a lot of times. And so how do you quantify the money that you would have spent yeah. on something had you not done the research? It's all very speculative. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, I guess a couple... I was listening to a talk uh, recently. There was a UXR conference, um, and they had, like, a digital talk. And one of the, the speakers there was talking about, like, how a lot of finance is speculative. So you could, you know start to create your own algorithms for, for money saved or resources saved, even though, you know, to the, you know, the, the person that you're contracting is like, well, that's speculative. Well, a lot of finance and a lot of yeah. like statistics are speculative. It's only to give you like a ballpark number. So for instance, if I did a research study and it told me to prevent, like to not build a feature, you could gather, okay, how much is our, you know, our development team, how many hours did they act, you know, how much work would, would this have been? And, you know, give, come back with a number, oh, we saved X amount of money, 
you know, uh, because we didn't build that thing. So it's possible, but it's all very, like I said, like speculative. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've done that in the past actually, and uh, <laughs> recently there's a, a Forrester study somewhere uh, that says that for every dollar spent on design, uh, ten dollars are saved in development, and a hundred dollars are saved after the project is launched, and so. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's at least a uh, um, uh, one uh, source to uh, to quote and to claim when trying to justify the value of uh, in this case good design, which should be based on good research, right? Well, actually, and- let's dig into that because, like, as you know, we're both designers in Web three. Design is always severely undersourced in Web three. Almost like I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to, what the ne- next analogy is, but it's very undersourced. A lot of places only have one designer, maybe two. And a lot of times their first hire is an engineering hire rather than a design hire. So like, what do you, why do you think it is that collectively we don't understand the value and the, like the ROI of investing in design? Um, I, my guess is that a lot of people don't really fully understand design because uh, we're talking about like very young founders who may or may not have design education or know what what good design looks like in like product building terms. And so all they know is that I need a guy to build the thing or I need people to build the thing. And they're not thinking about the design aspect. Yeah, I, I think we, we've been through this in Web2. Um, so I think it's playing out in the same way, basically, mm-hmm. which is which is that... Um, um, there's not much sensibility to design in general, mm-hmm. um, especially from um, founders, entrepreneurs, uh, business owners, etc. Um, because it is not that clear that good design will bring better business. But uh, mm. everybody, every human being feels in their core when they are using something that's well designed and mm-hmm. when they're using something that's not well designed, right? Even though they're not able to articulate that the difference is good design or not, they feel it. And uh, it's not so strange to um, believe that good design will bring better experiences, people will feel better about using the products and should be something that people, uh, companies should invest in and organizations should invest in, right? I think right now we're we're going through a stage um, that uh, also happened in Web2, which was, People are looking at design as as the you know only as UI basically, mm-hmm. and uh, they need a designer because they need some UI designed, mm-hmm. um, not because they need to think strategically about design, not because they need to, to think strategically about their business models and so on, um, and much less because they think they need to do research. And it all it's all based on the on the on the same belief, which is I believe, which is that. People that start businesses in Web3, especially among all the hype that was going on for a while, mm-hmm. um, they believe they know what's the right, what is the right solution, right? And so yeah. if, they be- if they believe they know what's the right solution, then why do they need people to do research to challenge that or invalidate that potentially? And why do they need people to design it in a different way than ones that they imagine it is the right solution, right? So well, I, I think effect going on where people yeah. leave their ability to design something higher than what it actually is and until they have that first failure 
or I feel that it, like the the friction that it is not something not being designed well, they don't think it's a need. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you think that's like youth? Because like I've talked to a lot of more experienced um, professionals who like know the importance of design because you know they like you said they felt that in web 2 like when web, web 2 was first taking off it was the same like we're bound we're repeating the same mistakes and i'm start i start to wonder like why like if we know this like if one of some of the most successful companies on this planet have really good design why do we think we can like submit that for web 3 like i don't understand this disconnect yeah. <laughs> i do i do i do feel in fairness that it is a little bit better now like uh, I, I, I seen, um, I've seen startups uh, in Web three that started by hiring a user researcher first mm. uh, before engineers, for example, which I, which I think is uh, a good sign and, and the correct way of thinking. Um, but uh, it's not, uh, it's not common uh, for sure. I do think it's a little bit better than than Web two, to to be fair. Um, but uh, again, uh, I think it goes on to what you were saying, which is, uh, I don't know how to sell research to anybody that hasn't felt the pain of not having done research and building something that the world doesn't want and failing at it, right? Because only after, only after you've um, tried to build something that you're convinced is the right thing based uh, on zero evidence from research, but just your own personal belief and your own ego, let's say, and then you actually fail, uh, only then I think uh, you would realize that uh, actually I should do this differently and there's another way, which is to design things that are um, backed by research, right? Actually, yeah, and let's talk about ego building. Yes. <laughs> so, so another observa observation that I've, a typical situation that I've walked into or been a part of is where like Web3 and a lot of Web3 and DAOs are made with a bunch of people and their friends, right? They're, they're really passionate about something. They want to make a thing. And they may or may not always have all of the skill sets required to make that thing, but they'll try to make do with the skill sets that each of their mm -hmm. friends have. Um, and they, they usually get to a point where they realize that, oh, we need X, we need a PM, or we need a designer, or we need that. And instead of like coming to terms with that, a lot of times the people will build through it um, and build what they want to see and what they want done versus like what needs to be done. Um, and I think because of the lack of like in Taoism, everybody has a say, everybody's equal. But in that equality, sometimes like there isn't that one voice of reason in the organization that says like, hey, I know y'all want to do all this fun stuff, but like there is not fun stuff that just needs to happen in order for us to be successful. And sometimes Dow has that person and sometimes the Dow doesn't have that person. And it's very clear when they do or do not sometimes. Um, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about ego? <laughs> um... Well, yeah, I've seen, I, I am seeing that happening in real time in in several DAOs actually, and uh, I, I I think that um, it, it is not. Um, I, I don't think it is fair to blame the uh, inability to articulate why design is important, um, because. Um, it, what it should happen is that the communities that are in DAOs should be diverse enough 
to have voices that say, hey, design is important and it is important to this degree where now is the time that maybe we need to pay a designer to do his work, right? And uh, and, I, and I think that the, the reason why sometimes this statement doesn't, doesn't happen uh, is because there's not enough diversity in the community on, on those DAOs. And, um, and that can be a much bigger problem than just lack of designers, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and so uh, if that's the case, um, people that are um, ego-driven, obviously, will, um, will uh, try to make do with uh, whatever they can and hack away and uh, hack a design away and try to, try to wing it. Um, but again, I, I, I mean, I think um, it's very hard and I tried time and time again to uh, reason and, and persuade this uh, type of attitude. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the only um, the only solution is um, to try to do something, then inevitably fail, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and learn from that failure. Yeah, I think not to even put all the blame on like because I think us us as designers we we often come off as like whiny, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why can't things be our way? And you know, I understand that, but also. It's two sides, right? Because I've been a part of low design maturity organizations, I mean, almost my entire career at this point. And what I've had to do is, like you said, articulate and be a great communicator about good design and what good good design decisions look like, feel like, and from a design and research perspective. So, like, for instance, at (laughs) at one of my first jobs, I started our quote-unquote UX with literally just guerrilla surveys. Like, they were okay with me surveying people. I got the green light to do that. I would build these surveys. I would send them out either pre or post one of our marketing campaigns. And the feedback that came back from even just those surveys like felt so valuable to the team that that then allowed me to do more and more research-based design and design-like orientation. And if and no one in was going to like give me that if it became like a whole pitch or made it, if I made it seem like a whole thing or if I pushed for like usertesting.com that costs a billion dollars, you know, like yeah. I had to work with the tools that I was given. And once I they started to see those benefits, slowly but surely I was able to raise the design maturity of that organization with, with more and more studies and more and more um, data. And Sometimes you have to do that <laughs> uh, in order to, to even begin that conversation uh, or even do it on your own, unfortunately, with no budget to, yeah, exactly. even, to even like show the value of that. And I think in Web3, that's what we need to do. We need designers that will say, I'm not going to wait for you to give me the green light to do research. I'm just going to do research and, <laughs> and, and get it done as best I can and then show you the benefits of, of the data that I'm getting, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. And, and and it is conducive, the culture, to act in a guerrilla-style way, right? Because mm-hmm. basically what, what, what you're describing is um, guerrilla research, right? And, uh, and uh, I mean, um, I've, I've, I've done it a bunch of times, uh, mm-hmm. even to the cost of uh, not getting compensated for it, mm-hmm. um, just, to, just to be able to have the evidence to, and the data to 
to um, to show the team that uh, one path versus the other path may not be the good idea, and so on, and so on and so forth. And um, uh, I, I do think that the, the the culture in DAOs is conducive to um, guerrilla research, and and I and I think there's no there it should be no um, disdain about that. I think we should own it and embrace it and and go full throttle on it. Um, and I also do think that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm um, um, shaping up our endow. I also do think that it would be great if that kind of research would be open and accessible to everybody. Because if me as a researcher trying to work on a specific research question in a specific problem area, uh, I conduct some research that um, you know uncovers some insights and some data, uh, it would be awesome if another research uh, uncom- uh, trying to work on another problem area that's maybe neighboring to mine uh, with another research question that's maybe similar to mine would also be able to have access to the research data that I, co- that I collected and to the insights that I came up with and cross-reference them, use them for their own research as well, right? So this whole idea of open research is also conducive to um, independent agents, researchers doing research in a guerrilla-style way and uh, being able to build on top of each other's work. Which is which has not been possible in traditional organizations because mm-hmm. uh, always the research data and research insights were always the most almost the most private thing, right? Because it was the thing that would uh, would uh, make the corporation or the organization uh, uh, an edge or an advantage over over the, the rest of the market. I will say there is a bit of a dark pattern um, when it comes to research from both the person commissioning the research and the person doing the research. And that is, if I'm doing research and I make my living doing research, I want as many clients as possible, even if that means doing the same or similar studies over and over again, which honestly starts to happen if you're in the space long enough. Um, So like if I started to publish some of that research to the point where like a potential client doesn't even feel the need to hire me anymore because my research is public, that is like kind of technically eating into my bottom line. And then from the other perspective, like, I don't think all Web3 organizations are all about this, like, whole public good situation. And a lot of them want to feel like they have a leg up over their perceived competition. And if I did research and you didn't, it's going to be very clear in the way that we design uh, products who did and didn't do research. And I might want to have that that advantage. I, I And I'm, I'm, I'm not being devil's advocate. I'm just saying that it is, like, powers that be that, like, kind of wants research to be more closed because yeah. of those things. Yeah, I mean uh, that's the that's the current incentive, and uh, as long as there's uh, competition, there will always be that incentive, right? Um, um, organizations, even Web three organizations, DAO, so on, will conduct research and will keep that research private. the uh, The problem with keeping the research private is that, um, from what we're we're finding out in our DAO, is that um, the quality of the research that is kept private is pretty shitty. <laughs> because uh, it, this discussion is cannot be separated from the uh, from the discussion of okay, um, is the research that is conducted under one set of circumstances versus research that is conducted under another set of circumstances differ in quality? And by quality, I mean uh, does it have biases from the researchers? Uh, does it have a manipulated data on it? Does it have blah, 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 blah. You know, there's there's a bunch of ways 
to uh, do shitty research. And uh, I actually I have this uh, this uh, argument, which is that sometimes it's even worse to do bad quality research than doing no research at all, because when you do bad quality research, even either by incompetence or because you don't know better or 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 because you're actually uh, acting in bad faith and you want to um, to uh, influence a particular uh, outcome from that research, uh, when you do bad quality research. Um, the organization and the team is convinced that, oh, this is definitely the right path, right? Because we've done research. And uh, then they double down on the path that is not correct because the research was badly conducted. And so sometimes it's even worse to do bad quality research than to do no research at all. Because when you do no research at all, you know that you're winging it. You know that you're trusting in somebody's intuition about what's the right path. But when you do some research and it's uh, flawed research, then you're convinced on the, that you're in the right path, and the damage can be even greater. So, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think that this conversation can be separated from the conversation of mm-hmm. what is the type of circumstances that leads to better quality research. Because, in my opinion, private research will always be lower quality than public research, and the reason is that public research can be cross-checked, can mm-hmm. be peer-reviewed, can be falsifiable. And uh, private research, you know, you just have to trust the researcher that uh, they did a good job, which is I mean, not, like, not ideal. I'm definitely with you in terms of, like, bad research is, is, like, worse than no research. I mean, not to throw myself under the bus, but, like, <laughs> a lot of in-house research is kind of bad. Because and it's not it's not the designer or researcher's fault. Is that the stakeholders so desperately want to see a thing, and it's like when you're a part of that organization, it's very easy to succumb to that. Whenever, yeah, exactly. Whenever you're conducting a re- research study and you work in house with the people, um, and also another thing is like I have done research studies and literally has have had stakeholders take my shit apart because it didn't say the thing that it wanted it to say. And yeah, that, exactly. and you can, when you're not working for that person, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. But when you're working for that person, it's hella uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you're screwed. You're screwed because basically you're seeing your livelihood and your 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 salary being threatened by the the mm-hmm. the output of your work, right? And that's and that's actually that's actually the problem. I mean, uh, I'm not sure how much of research is done to uh, basically validate something that the organization already believes or a particular stakeholder in the organization already believes. But I would, I would, I would speculate that it's like a big percentage. It's like probably the, the, the largest chunk of yeah. research that's done is done to validate some previous held belief or previous held direction that some stakeholder in the organization already has. And that's obviously not the um, <laughs> the reason why people should do research, right? And uh, uh, actually, the opposite reason should be the reason why people should do research. People should do re- research to try to invalidate a specific um, hypothesis, or to try to invalidate a specific path, or 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 concept, or whatever it is. And so um, th- that's why I feel that the only solution for that kind of uh, dilemma, where a researcher knows that they are being uh, um, uh, ordered to do research to validate the previously already mm-hmm. agreed upon and 
um, documented belief. Um, now is in now is in a situation where um, they either present what the stakeholders want or they could be fired, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I feel that the only solution for that is to change the incentives. And if a research was done, for example, by an uh, independent third party, right, uh, that is not bound by the incentives of um, mm-hmm. of the organization. And also, if the outcomes would be public and could be peer-reviewed and, you know, assessed for quality and all those things, um, then we would all learn and... Uh, the incentives would be different, but um, the the fact of the matter to me is that, I, and I've done research in a bunch of contexts and a bunch of startups, corporates, uh, you name it. And um, once I started to do research that is more open and more public and more uh, out there, I've realized that the difference in quality is not like double the quality; it's like ten times mm. higher quality. And uh, because once you're doing research in the open, everything you do as a researcher can be um, cross-checked, right? The type of people that you recruited for the studies, the questions that you asked in the studies, the way you handle data, the way you uh, summarize data, the way you extracted insights from data, all of those steps can be cross-checked. And um, as a researcher, there's a bunch of places where you can... Uh, fuck up either intentionally or non-intentionally and um, and all of that influences the quality of the final output and so um, being able to do that without any um, checks and balances as a researcher in a private setting is uh, not conducive to good quality research yeah I mean I'm, I'm with you with that it's just that as a person who's done a lot of private research it is scary to just like I, I think about some studies that I've done, and it's like, damn, if another researcher was looking at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the question. Exactly. They call me out on. Or <laughs> like, uh, your segments weren't that great, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we've all, we've all, we've all been, we've all done that, right? And we know. I mean, we know. Like when we when we talk to researchers and we ask them, like, oh, would you be okay if another researcher would look at the way you've conducted this piece of research? They'll be like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could look at it, but don't tell nobody. But exactly. Um, <laughs> also, I mean, there, there is like a, a little bit of a darkness of like sometimes you work with clients and you got to meet a deadline, and they're not giving you the segments that you need, so you just grab people who are close enough to the segment, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, yeah. and to get what you need. So I do understand that. One, two, two things I wanted to talk about next is like one, how you being a good designer does not necessarily make you a good researcher and talk about like design education and how it doesn't always lend itself to good research. Mm-hmm. And another thing I wanted to talk about was like how best to deliver research because I've had to pivot and adjust my delivery based on my audience a lot of times. And, and I noticed that a lot of researchers tend to just be like really prepackaged their delivery and th- it doesn't have contextual um, like that context. So I guess the yeah. first thing is like one, I did not learn how to be a good researcher in design school at all. Um, I had the propensity for it, meaning like I, I like gravitated towards it. And whenever I would get critiqued from 
didn't work. People would compliment me on my like concepts and, and my need to want to do ethnographic studies and things like that. But it wasn't until I realized that I wanted to do this UX thing that I started self-teaching and learning about how best to do research, how best to ask questions, the various types of studies, reading books or whatever. And that got me talent plus you know, my own education got me to the point where I could do it professionally. But like, just because you're a designer doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good at this whole research thing. Yeah. Uh, I would even say that um, they're kind of uh, opposite crafts, to be honest. Because, um, well, for example, the best researchers that I know are shitty designers, and the <laughs> best designers that I know are shitty researchers. You know, and uh, and the way the the reason why I say that they are opposite crafts is because in the design process they're actually uh, opposing forces, right? Because mm -hmm. if you start with research and you uncover some insights and you discover some opportunities for some solution to be designed around them, right, to solve them, then the process of designing those solutions and those uh, uh, to to address those opportunities um, is a different process and probably will drift away from the original opportunity, right? In some sense. And so it needs a cross-check in the end or close to the end or somewhere after the solution has been designed, um, prototype, whatever. It needs a cross-check from the research insights to say, yeah, this solves the thing that we identified or no, uh, the designer actually designed something for something completely different because they misinterpreted the, the research data, right? The research insights. And so I, I do think there's, there's opposing forces between research and design in the whole uh, process. And I do think there are different crafts. And I do think that they are best done by different types of people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do believe that designers can become researchers and uh, the other way around as well. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, um, the human being that's, that is trying to do both jobs should like actually change ads in the in between them and and act in a different way and uh, and um, and have a, a, a different mindset as to how they're doing research and as and as to how they're doing uh, design um, mm. and and I and I'm and I'm not sure if a design education is the best starting point for becoming a researcher i'm actually pretty sure it isn't no it's not. Uh, and so, <laughs> so no, no, which mean which means that for most people trying to most people that have a design education trying to get into research it's a hell of a transition it's it's very difficult actually um and so it's almost becoming a different uh, person with a different mindset with different uh, set of skills and so on so it's not it's not easy at all um, and it's uh, it, it can be also said the same thing about uh, being trained as a graphic designer or a visual designer and then transitioning to be more strategic or more UX uh, yeah. designer, right? It's kind of the same thing. I like so, to say everybody ain't able, okay? So <laughs> yeah. I would say as a person who is a, a researcher and designer, I would say I... I appreciate my design education. Like I, my design abilities are very much because of my baseline education and things like typography, visual, whatever. Mm -hmm. But like as I got into my career, I realized that wasn't that like the most. I wasn't the most extremely talented visual person, which honestly ended up being to my benefit because I was able to really dive into research. Like the reason my, why I was able to design well, if if at all, was because of the little bit of research that I was doing 
into my design. But I will say like a lot of, in my experience, a lot of designers are very visual and output hung up. And I have witnessed designers do bad research studies because their point of view of the research was like, let's make a thing. We're going to, you know, verify this opportunity. We're going to do this. And and they miss things like they, they do things like ask leading questions. They do yeah. things like not think about the way the, the questions are being asked, like the order of the questions. They're not thinking about <laughs> whether this is even the appropriate type of study to do for the thing that they're asking for. Like yeah. all those things like get thrown out of the wayside because well, let's just do a little bit of research and, you know, concept validating. And it's like, exactly. yeah, like you, this is even the right way to go about this. And so, I mean, I can do both, but I also, also like switch those hats. So like when I'm in research mode, I'm, I'm my primary like focus is appropriately asking the thing, having really good research, not asking, like basically having very, like a lot of vigor to my work to the point where like, if I'm the only researcher in the organization, I have hired people to look over my research studies because like, it's very hard to do research by yourself. Well, you know, know? Um, and then two, whenever I do go into design mode, I'm, I am at a more strategic lens. Like I do, I don't care immediately about the end thing. I'm like, all right, I'm thinking about like user flow, like what should we build because of this research? And so, and so by the time I even get to like making the screens or whatever, most of the work is already done. And, and now I'm just really untechnical. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. I, 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 I do think that um, um, we, we, we must admit that in most organizations, at least from my reading of the things, uh, research that is done by designers basically means usability testing, which means that they design something and now before committing it to go uh, to developers and being implemented in code, they're like, "Mm, maybe we should test this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's test it. And they call the user usability testing activity research, but they're basically, um, you know, they created a baby. They love that baby that they created, the solution that they designed, right? And now yeah. they're putting it out into the world. And if someone says that the baby is not that cute, they will not hear it, right? <laughs> they will ignore. <laughs> and I they know, will. I know that firsthand. I've like done usability testing for the design that wasn't mine. I'm like, by the way, this whole thing, you need to redo it completely. <laughs> and they're like, nah. <laughs> nah, it's my baby. It's my baby. Yeah, exactly. So, so of course that this setup is not. It's not conducive to good quality anything, really, because mm-hmm. uh, it is biased in the in the most horrible way possible. Which is, uh, the person that created the solution is trying to test the solution and is in love with the solution, and uh, their ego does not allow them to hear feedback that is um, uh, counter to the to the to the current solution, right? And no matter no matter how mindful a human being is and and uh egoless and so on it doesn't matter because if you spend weeks designing something you will inevitably fall in love with it and you will inevitably be defensive about it whenever somebody else critiques it and it happens in design reviews and if of course it happens in uh, usability testing and so the people that do the usability testing should not be the people that created the thing right it makes no sense Anywhere else in the world, the uh, auditor of the thing is not the creator of the thing, right? So it doesn't make sense to be the same people. 
And this um, is why we need bigger fucking teams. Like, like yeah, literally, Web three, they'll be like, let's let's hire one designer. I hope they can do all these things, and they don't see like that's would be the equivalent of hiring one engineer. Who who's gonna do the PR review? Like, like yeah, exactly. It's not gonna be done. No QA, no nothing. It's gonna ship to production without testing and hope for the best. That's what that's what it is. And it's it's the exact same thing that happens with with design when people expect one single human being to do all the things. It means that it will be shipped to production without being tested, full of bugs, and um, in the in the in the worst uh, 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 situations, it will inflict harm into the users that are using it. Right. So we get, because that's the risk. That's the that's the actual bad part. About, okay, I'm gonna do it. I have a tangent about well, before we move on to our next subject, which is design delivering research. Yes, delivering research. Um, the 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 just ship it shit like the 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 culture and that's the thing that bothered me when I first got into Web three about like the propensity to just ship shit without the the like without considering the consequences or implications of their actions and so many people I hate freaking lean startup because they started this thought which was like so many people are like you can't really truly test something unless you ship it live unless you are testing with real customers you're never gonna know whether it's gonna work or not and that's such bullshit because if you do good research you can get very good insights that are close to if not better than live testing on people and why are we treating people like guinea pigs this is their money that they're spending on our product why are we in a situation why are we in a culture that is okay with treating live customers like guinea pigs like that bothers the crap out of me yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> in some in some regulated industries that's very illegal right yeah <laughs> that's the issue i mean we do have a precedent which is well, in uh, serious, crucial, critical industries, there's regulations that uh, make that kind of thing illegal, right? And uh, I- I'm not claiming that we should have more regulation in Web3. I'm just saying that uh, people should act in a way uh, as if we were regulated or heavily regulated because it, it does warrant that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. we are doing applications, uh, decentralized applications in Web3, that play with people's money mm-hmm. and if people for some reason if they don't understand something correctly or if the ui has a dark pattern in it or whatever reason it is if they lose their money they will they will be pretty pissed off right yes. <laughs> and uh and so we should not handle that kind of uh interaction uh as lightly as oh i'm just doing a photo sharing app and people will share their photos and people will other people will like and comment on their photos and that's it no that's not that's not the same level of um potential harm that can be done mm-hmm. um and i mean we've seen a lot of harm that was done by web to uh social media companies right and yeah. so just imagine that extrapolated to playing with people's money in web3 the the amount of harm is, is it also much greater. delegitimizes the space like i think a yeah, among, yeah, exactly. Like among the, the the things that I like to pull my hair out about, so to speak, is that I have tried to. I've been a part of organizations like we're so deep in this Web three world and space that we forget that most people don't know what the fuck we're talking about most of the time. And so, a lot of times when things are getting designed, it's designed from the perspective that this person is already a part of this this ecosystem that is Web three. When like most people, 
even if they know a little bit about crypto, are not as deep in it as we are. And so that barrier of entry is very high. And I've gotten into conversations where I've like said, like, hey, you know, most people don't understand this. And the ego reigns all. They're like, no, what are you talking about? This is so easy to understand. Like, no, it's not. Like, most people are not going to understand this. And I've lost and won that battle a couple times. And on that, on top of not doing testing, delegitimizes our work and our, the applications that we're building because people are going to be like, who the hell are these people making these, this random shit? Am I, am I going to lose my money? Am I going to lose this? But lose that? That's why most people, newbies, stick with big corporations like Coinbase and some other places because at least those places have enough rigor where they feel safe. We got to make people feel safe enough to use our product. You know? Yeah. Wait, that's my mini tangent. I don't know if you have a, a last word. On- <laughs> I, I just wanted to say something, which is, about the the issue of uh, people will not understand this, but it is so simple to understand this one. I I do think we should assume and work from a mindset of, uh, especially in Web3 and crypto, especially in the space that's still developing, especially in something that's so new and so revolutionary. The only safest position to assume is nobody knows shit. Mm -hmm. Even people that claim that they know, they don't know. Mm -hmm. And, And I mean, I've been in this space for years now, and uh, a bunch of people claim that they know this and that and so on and so forth. And actually, when you cross-examine that, they don't. They don't know. <laughs> okay? They pretend they know most of the time. So my personal observation is that most people claim that claim they know, they actually don't know. And so we should operate under the assumption that nobody knows shit. And mm-hmm. we as designers need to take that into account and design accordingly. We mm-hmm. should not assume anything. We should not assume any prior knowledge from the users. We should not assume that, uh, you know, the things that we're proposing the users to do are very clear and very obviously and very uh, in their self-interest. We need to design in a way that explains all that and brings clarity to all that. We should not obfuscate the complexity of crypto Mm -hmm. and we should not make decisions for our users without telling them. All right. Well, that's our mini... (laughs) tangent that we just went on so, we were about uh, um, the output of research right yeah the output of research let's, let's like transition back um, I actually would like you to start this because I have let me gather my thoughts a few about a few ways that I've done this but um, another downside is that people pay a bunch of money for research and they don't feel like the output is like good enough to justify the cost yeah I, I, um, I think that's the capital flaw of research and researchers, which is to assume that the data and insights collected are so valuable and so good that it doesn't matter the shape with which you present them and that you don't even need to sell them in any way. I think, I think believing that is the biggest cap, uh, you know, sin, capital sin of, of research and researchers because um, what most researchers are trying to do when they are presenting their research uh, outputs is basically saying, A, stakeholder, you were believing X, but we've done the research and actually the truth is Y, right? In, in some form, shape or another, that's basically the, the, the message. And this is not the kind of message that a stakeholder that has invested God knows how much time and money and energy into something 
is very open to here, right? <laughs> Especially if it comes in the shape of a PDF report with a bunch of numbers and charts and text that nobody has time to read, right? And so it's very naive, I think, from the researcher point of view, uh, the researcher part, to think that, oh, we've done the research, we have the data, we have the, the evidence. Of course, they will change their opinions. Like, of course they will. But that's not true. People are not uh, cold and rational like that. People are emotional and decide emotionally for most things, especially things that have that they have invested a lot of time and energy on. And so I, uh, I believe that um, nowadays researchers should start the research project by thinking how they are going to present the outcome, independently of what the outcome is. Because uh, to expect that a standard off-the-shelf presentation method like a research report would be good for every context, every organization, every stakeholder, every problem. Uh, it's just uh, it's just crazy to think that uh, a PDF research report will be the right medium to deliver uh, those insights to all those different kind of uh, contexts and organizations and stakeholders. It can't be. And so I would uh, nowadays I start research projects just by thinking, okay. If I find out something in this research project that is opposite to what the stakeholders currently believe, how am I going to present this to them in a way that they actually listen to me and believe that I've done the research properly and change their opinions, right? Because that's actually the challenge. We, the business of research is not to output research. The business of research is to change direction for the better direction, right? Uh, it's not just to output the research data. Yeah. And uh, we need to start all research projects thinking about, okay, if we discover something that is counter to the current status quo, mm -hmm. how are we going to sell it, basically? Are we going to present it and change people's minds about it? And we need to craft that argument, I mean, flawlessly. And even if we craft that argument flawlessly, in the end, the CEO can still say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I actually do believe that you're right, but I think we should continue in the path that we are. And uh, thank you very much. Bye. Right. <laughs> yeah, that has, happened, that has happened to me a couple times. Um, and, okay, so this is the word. This is the area in which that I have benefited from being both a designer and a researcher. Yeah. Because I have learned the best way to sell research is to sell a story. You got to do some storytelling. Mm -hmm. And um, and also as a person who's done in-house research, because I know my fellow coworkers so well and I know their workflow. I've been able to insert research into that workflow in a way that, sorry, I hear some background noise. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, in a way that um, is actually useful and that they can use for them. So I think uh, one, there's one thing, researchers don't spend enough time understanding who they're doing research for and how this is going to like influence their workflow. So I personally like to do a little bit of, you know, research on the people that I'm doing and be like, okay, who is your team? Who's going to be using this, you know, like learn about who is going to be using this thing. And that is going to help me determine a good output. Uh, secondly, I, I like to craft narratives from the research. So that can mean like video clips. If you're allowed to show video mm -hmm. audio clips, that could be, you know, basically frame the research in terms of like a beginning, middle end. Like, what is the story of the research? What did you find? Not just individual insights. 
And then another thing is like sometimes visual representations of what you saw or what went down will kind of help someone like materialize it a lot more than just like text on the screen, which is like people really don't digest like text in like PDF formats of research very well. That's just gonna sit in someone's computer somewhere and never be referenced again. Yep. Um, and so it's important to create a lot of visual or like storytelling pieces to research that they can then feel like they can use and leverage in later pieces of their work. Like we have a really good video clip that could be used in so many different contexts to like tell a story about why or why that they not should do something. Um, so I've done uh, mental model maps. I've done, you know, diagrams. I've done like, you know, video clip montages. I've done like, you name it. I have experimented with it. Um, and sometimes despite all of that, it still falls on deaf ears. Like you said, like they don't really materialize it. The, the yeah. one thing that I've noticed that fails more often than not, as much as I do love personas is personas. Like personas are very hard to integrate into like, everyday decisions uh, about product because you you just feel so far removed from it and i've even been thinking about ways to I, i'm like on the fence of like our personas are useful you know to like an engineer or to like a designer that's going to build the thing the, the personas in my experience have been more useful to like marketers and stakeholders and like that storytelling piece but the people who are closest to the actual work don't visualize using those, those those you know canned personalities in their work as much they they kind of because they're so close to it they function off their own assumptions and interactions with everyday users versus a persona that's been built yeah later. um well b before going into the persona issue which is a huge <laughs> issue um <laughs> a huge can of worms actually uh but uh, but i do wanted to share a story which is that um um, I mean, like you said, it is super useful to look at the research project from a design point of view, mm -hmm. as in, if my user, as a researcher, my users are the stakeholders that are going to decide stuff based on my research, right? Mm -hmm. And so I need to design the research and shape the research format to suit them. So researching them and what they are paying attention to and what interest is, is of interest to them and so on is super valuable to shape how the research should be presented. Mm -hmm. I I, uh, I did a research project once for a company, like a big company, a 20-year-old, $10 billion company, blah, 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 blah. And they have a tech product. And um, basically, I did some uh, um, uh, usability testing and interviews, and I had a clip of a user using the product for the first time that was so unbelievable that uh, every time I showed that clip, people were like, oh shit, we have to redesign the whole product. Right? This was the default reaction to seeing that clip. <laughs> it was so good. And, uh, and, um, and, and it was not the only one. I had several clips like this. <laughs> but this one, this one was the most, where the user was the most vocal about it, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the user was almost to the point of punching the computer because they had to use it. And... Um, and I used that clip over and over again to convince people that we were not going in the right path, you know? Because it doesn't matter how many uh, analytics and metrics and data I show them, until they see the face of rage of that user trying to use their product, 
almost to the brink of destroying their own computer because they were trying to use that product. Until the CEO and the CFO and the CTO and everybody sees that face, that human face, suffering because of a product they design, they don't understand and they will not feel um, a reason to change, right? And so I've, you know, milked that clip <laughs> as, 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 as best as I could for as far long as I could. And in the end, the organization decided, yes, we should redesign the whole product, right? I'm not saying it was just because of that clip, but I'm saying that this was a key piece to change the mindset around, oh, no, no, our product is great. People just need to train on it. People just need to uh, learn a little bit of how to use it, and we're good. But until they saw the, re the gut reaction that it provoked on users, then they realized, okay, um, that face of rage, pure rage from our users is not what we want to uh, invoke in this world, right? Yeah, there's nothing like adding that human... Because we, we're so in the trenches with this that, like... I've noticed more a lot of times that we get so far removed from the person that's actually using the thing. We yeah. pontificate, we theorize, we make a bunch of assumptions, and we make, like, we, we make personas. <laughs> yeah, we make personas, and it's just like these are real people with lives outside of our application, and 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 like we're not the center of their world as much as we like to think it. We are. Yeah, um, we need to design for that. Um, so we're almost come up here on the hour. So our closing thoughts mm -hmm. <laughs> to summarize one research isn't, isn't really done until they feel the pain of not doing research. It's very hard to advocate for research uh, without that first sting to designer. You need to hire a researcher and a designer, someone who's doing both of that work. It, it's just bound to, to have like inconsistencies and deliver bad research. And I think uh, three, our primary point is like, as a researcher, you need to really design the delivery of the research and, and have it speak to the people that um, that is going to use it and to create those narratives and stories. And if you do discover something that is going to <laughs> make them cringe, like really think about that conversation carefully and how you deliver it and, and really sell them on, on that narrative that goes against their beliefs. Um, do you have any other <laughs> closing thoughts on this whole combo? That, I think that's, that's uh, beautifully summarized. <laughs> I, I, I would just add uh, one thing, is, which is that on the quest of selling research, usually what has been working better for me uh, is not just uh, praising the, you know, if we do research, we will be more confident about the strategy that we're following, blah, 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 is also uh, communicating the other side of the coin, which is if we don't do research, mm -hmm. uh, we are incurring in this risk, this other risk, this other risk, this other risk, this other risk. And the arguments for those, that kind of narrative are like, for every dollar spent on research, a thousand dollars is saved later right it's kind yeah. of like this ratio and uh um when you communicate it like this it's pretty obvious that investing on research uh for as time consuming as it might be and for as ex as expensive as it might be it is a much better investment than correcting things later that were badly designed and badly implemented and and are not the right things and so um 
highlighting the risks of not doing research is actually, I feel, in most organizations, the most powerful argument for investing on research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I might put this as like a mini episode, so I'll end it there. <laughs> but we didn't talk about Adobe Fit.